And we welcome you in to episode three of the best podcast available, otherwise known as the BPA. It is Gibbs. It is Gribbs. It is Nick Shook. New Browns. What's the title? Because now you guys were just talking about it yeah, before we started. Let's go with he, he's he's essentially our staff writer in-house. We call him a little differently, but he's 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 our beat guy. Multimedia. Multimedia. You've handled Anime yourself counts. quite well on Browns Daily. A little do a little bit of everything. <laughs> there you go. I like it. Nick Shook joining us here for the first uh, segment here. Coming up on today's podcast, Gribbs goes one-on-one with Joe Thomas, who is a part of NFL Network's coverage of the Combine. He'll be uh, with the offensive lineman on Friday. And some great stories uh, from him on his Combine experiences and a little story with Hank Fraley. <laughs> his NFL draft experience. I, I, I always wondered what players do during the draft because th- that's – this is the sensitive time of year for on-roster players. They're just hearing about how all gr- how great these new guys are that are coming to take their jobs, and it's every player is different when it comes to the draft. And Hank Fraley had quite an approach. <laughs> we'll also hear from NFL Network's Bucky Brooks moving up uh, in the NFL Network world. Obviously, when Mike Mayock becoming a GM, Daniel Jeremiah moves up to that number one draft guru slot. But uh, Charles Davis and Bucky Brooks both getting a lot more face time. On the television uh, and on NFL Network's uh, media platforms, and looking forward to hearing from him. Uh, he's got some interesting takes and some interesting views on this year's draft, especially when it comes to the quarterback position. Nick, this is not your first rodeo here at the NFL Combine. No. Not, not at all. Give me a takeaway from John Dorsey, Freddie Kitchens. It's one of the highlights of the Combine. Uh, for the Cleveland media and for all the NFL media that come in that covered their respective teams. Coach talks, GM talks. So we heard from Freddie Kitchens for the first time since the day he was hired. And uh, we heard from John Dorsey as well. Big takeaways from them as it pertains to this 2019 I think one of the first things that was pretty evident is this is the first time we got to hear them speak on similar subjects, but days apart or a day apart, individually, not seated next to each other. And what became very clear to me from the outset of both of their pressers is that they are very much in line with how each other thinks. I mean, they were almost repeating the same thing word for word and uh, when it came to certain subjects. And uh, it was very encouraging to see that, to see that they seem to be on the same page moving forward, which is great, especially this time of year, because your GM and your coach got to be in line with how you want to shape a team. Boy, have we uh, seen the exact opposite in certain aspects. <laughs> I think it was a couple of years ago where I think it was one day Hugh went and it was like, we're not going to be act- that active in free agency. And then the next day, Sasha was like, well, we're going to be kind of active in free agency. It was, it was just it was out of sync a little bit initially. But, yeah, these guys are in lockstep. And I, I think that Freddie is the best at knowing what he doesn't know. And I think that that's been clear he likes to empower people around him, whether it be his coordinators that he's hired and his coaching staff. And I think now this is him really getting his first full year of experience as the head coach where you're not picking the players necessarily, but you're way more involved than you used to be when you were running backs coach. I think the beautiful thing about that, too, and what we've taken for both of these guys is they don't think, I think, too highly of themselves to get in the way. You know, they listen to what their people around them are saying, you know, their, their coordinators, their assistants. You know, Dorsey, scouts, that situation, you know, they are not afraid to listen to other people's input and then apply them. And it seems to create a really good work environment for them. Obviously, with John Dorsey, uh, you're not going to hear a lot. You're not going to get a lot. But there are certain little tidbits here and there that he's going to drop. Like last year on Browns Daily when he listed the top five 
positions that you need to have on a team to be successful. You know, your quarterback, tackle, pass rusher, wide receiver, defensive back. This year, not a whole lot, but still some little trinkets, Chris. Yeah, there was three things that I took away in, in terms of, like, actual information, which is at this time of year it's hard to get really any information from general managers. But the three things he revealed that I think could shape what the Browns do in the draft, the first thing is him just identifying the obvious that defensive line is the major strength of this year's draft. And I think when you're starting to think about what the Browns could do at 17, I think odds are strong that it could go in the direction of defensive line. And then the second thing he mentioned was in the same breath is that the strength of this year's draft maybe as a whole is the depth that you can find on day two. And I think that that applies to a lot of positions, uh, most notably defensive line and corner. Uh, So the Browns currently have three day two picks, uh, a second rounder and a third rounder. You know, would it be crazy to see them go find a way to get a fourth? I mean, whether it be trading one of those 10 picks you have to to move back into the second or third round, whether it's moving down to acquire more picks uh, in the second or third round, that's something that I took to mean uh, something rather than nothing. And then the third thing, uh, in his side session with media, he was asked about the wide receiving core. And I think people have been asking about it a lot as if there's a big need. And the way he reacted seemed pretty genuine that I don't think he – thinks that that group needs as overhauled as people think it does. And so I wonder, you know, a lot of people have been falling in love with DK Metcalf and Marquise Brown, and if the Browns would go in that direction. I came away from today thinking that that is even less of a possibility maybe than it was uh, 24 hours ago from my perspective. I think it was really interesting in that point, too, where he made mention of the fact that there are a lot of bigger guys who are talented, and then there's a couple small, very fast guys. And, and you know, we've got at least one of those guys on the radar in, in, uh, who's a, the apple of Browns fans' eyes in Andy Isabella. So I thought that was kind of interesting that he pointed that out. Yeah. I think it's interesting, too, is it that the wide receiver group's more talented than we think, or you have a quarterback that makes everybody better? Right. Yeah, I think that that is what it is. I think all of a sudden the receivers pre-Baker Mayfield are really even the first half of the season – just didn't look very good and they were dropping making a lot of drops but it's 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 a confidence thing once you have a quarterback that's throwing the way baker does and and putting it into tight windows all of a sudden these guys are just playing a lot better i think rashard higgins was maybe the best example of that this past year you get a lot more out of him brashad perriman all of a sudden turning around his career if you bring him back which it sounds like they're pretty optimistic he's coming back i i think you maybe add a guy here or there but I don't know if this is a team that's in position to, to use such a high draft pick on a position where the impact out of that position group in the last few years' draft has been very minimal with these first-round guys. And some of those guys seemed like they were stronger prospects than some of the guys in this class. So I would agree in that sense that they're probably wiser to spend it elsewhere. Yeah. You talk about them adding additional picks maybe in day two. What are the possibilities of this team maybe taking some of those day two picks and moving up to the back end of the first round on the first day. It's tricky. I guess it, it, it's all about the, the player that they identify. If, if, they, if there's a guy that they're just absolutely in love with that they go back and get, I think that that's what the Browns did a couple years ago with David Njoku. I mean, they climb back into the, the first round to go get him, but it's a, it's a steep price to pay usually to get up up in that, in that spot in the draft. I mean, it, it, the cost of doing business. And I think that John Dorsey likes having a lot of these picks, and I think that specifically likes those day two 
kind of selection. So I, I would be surprised to see the Browns have any less than the three that they have right now in day two. And I would also be surprised to see them trade back into the first round. I think if we saw any scenario that would be more likely would for, for them to either trade down later into the first round or out of the first round entirely. He's done it before. John Dorsey has. That seems to be more likely than trading back into the first round. Yeah, well, I do wonder, though, if there's the possibility the on the flip side of maybe making an incremental small step up in the draft if there really is, if they identify that there's like 12 top shelf guys in this draft and all of a sudden there's maybe one left and maybe you make a small move up a few spots to go get it. That, that wouldn't surprise me. I just don't see many drastic moves coming either way out of that 17 spot. One guy uh, that's not here, but John Dorsey did mention, was Jeffrey Simmons. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think there's it was he was an interesting pick before the knee injury because of the the issue that he had in high school, uh, the domestic incident that was going to have to go under a lot of scrutiny to begin with, and now you add the medical to it, and he's because of his recent surgery, he's not even here, so he's not going through that interview process. But uh, it does sound like the Browns and, and a lot of other teams are are doing their homework on it. And I, I don't know if 49, which is where the Browns pick in the second round, if he's going to be there because uh, he is a talented player at a very valuable position. Uh, and te- there's other teams out there that might be willing to take a risk. The team I, I keep looking at that I think would take a risk on Jeffrey Simmons would be the Raiders. Three first-round picks, not exactly trying to win big this year. Uh, I, I would think that he's – a guy that they could grab, if it's not with their first three picks in the first round, somewhere in the second round before the Browns. And they, and they took a similar health-related risk last year in the draft when they took Maurice Hurst, you know, later yeah. in in the draft, and he had, you know, he had an issue as well, and that paid off well for them. As we take a look here at the 2019 Cleveland Browns, we've got takeaways from John Dorsey, we have takeaways from Freddie Kitchens. If you're the Browns and you're looking at the combine this weekend, your scouts are here, your front office people are here, your coaches are here. What are the three biggest positions that you're really, really taking a look at here this weekend? Yeah, I think mine, uh, all three of mine are on defense, and all three of mine are in the front seven. So I'm going with defensive tackle is my first one. I think you could really use some help there alongside Larry Ogunjobi, who I think is poised to have a huge year uh, in his third season. I think that's the area that maybe you can get the most out of it because, as, as everyone's indicated, the future of the NFL is getting the quarterback as fast as possible, and the fastest path is from the middle of that defensive line. Secondly, I look at pass rushers. I think that Miles Garrett needs some help uh, on the outside. I think Gennard Avery provided a boost there. Agba can do it in spurts there. But you, I think you come into this draft, uh, almost every team is looking for pass rush help, and I think the Browns are no different. And then third, I'm, I'm looking at linebacker. The comments today from John Dorsey about Jamie Collins, uh, it's, it's up in the air what, what, what his future uh, is with the team. I, I think even if he's coming back. You need more there. And I think it'll be interesting to see how uh, Christian Kirksey comes back from his injury, how Joe Schobert's used in this defense. But I think as we saw in that Ravens game at the end of the year, we this team needs to be better at linebacker stopping the run, especially if Lamar, you're going to be facing Lamar Jackson twice a year. I would agree entirely with all three of those, and it's not good for podcasting purposes, I know. <laughs> but I think the one difference here is I don't know if they necessarily address linebacker in this draft just because it is thin. It's a yeah. thin position group. I think that they could – use it on a tackle I know obviously they have Greg Robinson back on a one-year deal now and you know you have your entire starting line set and you have some developmental guys already there in a Desmond Harrison but I think that this is a group where you could get somebody who you know could develop into maybe a future right tackle or maybe a future left tackle depending on what happens in the years down the road Uh, I don't think it's something that they would necessarily do in the first round but because of the depth of that group in this class I would replace linebacker with tackle on this the Chiefs uh, have 
had some trade talks centered around their star pass rusher, Justin Houston. Could something like that impact this draft before it's all said and done? I think it could, but I mean, he, he's pretty well deep into his career. You know, what I mean, he's he's been he's been around for a while, and I think he could certainly help you in a pinch. But as John Dorsey said, every move that they're making now is not just about 2019; it's about the next four years uh, for this team. But I, I'm intrigued by the prospect of a guy like Justin Houston if it's something that's as simple as a, a fourth round pick or something something along those lines. If if you can part with something like that, you've got the cap space to make it work. That, that's a move that, that wouldn't surprise me at all. But when we go back and look at these moves from Dorsey last year, this team made a ton of moves in free agency and trades. Very, We're almost coming up on the one-year ver- anniversary ver- of that. Very, <laughs> very few of them involved guys who were on their third contract. I mean, th- these were all ascending players. It, it just has not been his hallmark to take guys who are maybe near the end of their career. But you never rule anything out with John Dorsey. That feels more like a move that would happen maybe a year from now. Just not just not right now. I think that they're more in the market of adding those younger guys. All right, let's take a look overall at the Combine headlines for the week. And we kick things off. Arizona Cardinals GM Steve Keim at the podium this week asked if Josh Rosen is his quarterback moving forward. And the quote, yeah, he is right now for sure. Uh, is that GM speak? Is it – are he and Cliff Kingsbury, speaking of being on the same page, are they on the same page right now? It's interesting because it would be such a bold move for them because really the only other option is Kyler Murray. I mean, I, they're not going to draft Dwayne Haskins to replace to replace Josh Rosen. It's either Kyler Murray or this is a whole ruse. I, I do think there is some incentive for them to start maybe making other teams think they're interested in Kyle, Kyler Murray to try to attract maybe some interest in getting that uh, a major trade offer for that number one pick because – if you're a team that has a quarterback like the Cardinals essentially have and you have the number one pick, you have to be entertaining trade offers. Like You just have to do it, even though this is a, a different kind of quarterback class. But at this point, you do anything you can to drum up interest. But if they really do go all in, that'll be one of the boldest moves uh, a team can make. And I would wonder what kind of trade value Rosen even has because it's almost like a, a new car. The moment you take it off the lot, the, the value goes down. We saw Rosen play, and it didn't look pretty all, at all the times. And I'd wonder what team would really – there were probably a lot of teams last year that were willing to go all in with Rosen at the draft, but now there might be a lot more reluctancy because they've seen what he can do in a year, and maybe it didn't excite them all that much. I feel like he's a victim of a situation as well. I mean, yeah. they, had a, they had a pretty bad offensive line last year. They did not protect him. They didn't open holes for David Johnson. That offense did not have much life except for maybe a few games. Their win over the Packers that essentially ended Mike McCarthy's tenure there was about the best they did all year. So, you know, I'm not – I think the jury's still out on Josh Rosen, but – I also think it's a little bit of smoke screening. I, I really do. Uh, I, I think that you have to maximize your value with that number one pick, especially in their situation right now where they could use a few first-rounders to add some talent and get back to respectability. Yeah, maybe it's just a prisoner of the fact that the guy hasn't played for a while, but is, is it maybe a factor of – I mean, Nick Bosa is, is a great player, but are they like, do we have to like use the number one pick on him? Are they like wrestling with that, or could we really get a boatload of picks? Because I don't know if anyone's going to trade up to number one to get Nick Bosa. It's going to be a quarterback or, or, or nothing, I think. And I think they're in that situation where if they have the leverage and you could get multiple first-rounders this year, why not? My other point is, Gibbs, is your wife your wife? Yes. Do you see how you answered that? Yes. Firmly? Yes. <laughs> for sure. Right now, I mean, for sure. Cardinals, Jets, Raiders. And even you could put the 49ers in there. There's four, three or four teams in the top five that I think would all entertain offers to move out of those respective spots. 
which team has the greatest chance to find a trade partner? I would think it's the, the Raiders just because they have options to, to move around. They have assets. You can. I, I feel like no one on their roster is uh, exempt from being traded. I think, I mean, w- could Derek Carr be traded at, at some point in, in these well, coming weeks? May- I mean, that's Mayock another... and, and Gruden both said that he's our guy. Yeah. Well, for now. For now. For now. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Sure. I guess. I guess. Yeah, I guess. Today? Sure. Okay. Great. I guess the, the Raiders, it's just a matter of this is what's so different about this year's draft compared to last year. It's all these teams that are at the top seemingly have their quarterback it, it, it's not until number six with the Giants and are they going to wait to get a quarterback at number six or are they going to play are they going to have to move up to, to guarantee they get the guy or are they just going to ignore the position for another year like they did last year it's weird too because usually if you have your quarterback you're not at the top of the draft right so yeah. it creates this conundrum and yeah, for multiple for, for all of them I mean all the ones we mentioned technically Cardinals Jets Raiders 49ers, even with Jimmy G coming off of the ACL, everybody's got a quarterback. You're right. I agree. It's got to be the Raiders. Yeah. We'll, we'll see if it happens. Though. I wonder if one of those teams is trying to get scare the Giants into moving up. Yeah, I mean. You it, know, it, it just, hey, the guy you want isn't going to be there at six. You better come up to three. You better come up to one. You better come up to four. You know, that's playing with fire, though, because if you're going to threaten to make that pick and then you make that pick, and then you can't deal that guy because you have no leverage now. You're stuck with that, you know, that whole situation. It was a risky trade last year when the Jets moved up from 6-3. to three. They gave up a lot, and they didn't give themselves complete control of their quarterback pick. There's been various reports on who, how their pecking order actually worked out in the draft, whether or not Darnold was their number one guy. But at worst, they ended up with their number two guy. This year, you don't want to end up with your number two guy because there's, there's, if you're interested in Kyler Murray, you're probably not interested in anyone else in that quarterback class. You don't go be like, okay, I missed on Kyler Murray. Let's take Drew Locke. You don't do that. I mean, you don't, you don't just like he, – he's got specific suitors, I would say, for him, and, and only one's going to end up with him. All right, moving on to Kyler Murray. Speaking of the man, uh, his measurables are in. Height, 5'10 and 1'8". Uh, weight, 207. More importantly, the hand size, nine and a half. Uh, compare those, Russell Wilson's hand size, ten and a quarter, and Baker Mayfield was nine and a quarter. So it, it sounds like outside of the height, uh, although Russell Wilson at 5'10", Kyler Murray pretty close to 5'9". Well, I saw someone refer to his weigh-in as uh, show weight, which, which is like, <laughs> so I wonder – what he's going to play at. He's chugging water the night before. Right. I wonder, because he probably had to get himself. All night yeah. down. I mean, I'm no expert, but I, I'm pretty sure he wasn't 207 at no, Oklahoma. No. And so I wonder if this is going to be a weight he can really maintain or if this was a result of a specific training regimen that then you go back when he arrives on your campus and all of a sudden he's at like a buck 95 or something. That's what I wonder. Because as someone pointed out, Russell Wilson had to get like down to that weight. Like he played big in college. Right. But Kyler did not. Not sure he's going to throw at the combine. Haskins says he's throwing. Murray leaning towards not throwing since 2008. 21 of 32 first round QBs have thrown at the NFL combine, including Baker, Josh Allen, Josh Rosen, and Lamar Jackson. Sam Darnold was the most recent to not throw. Good idea or bad idea for Mr. Murray? I guess. Does it matter? I, I, I don't know if it matters. It, it all depends on the year. I mean, because I think there's certain years where there's a lot of good quarterbacks and everyone, no one wants to be the guy that doesn't throw. And I, Darnold got away with it last year. It didn't really matter. He had a good pro day. I, I think it, for the, the throwing, again, with Murray, it's one of those things where if, if you like the guy and are enamored enough with him, 
what he does here probably doesn't matter to, to I, th- I think the logic of not throwing makes sense if you think you're going to get upstaged or if you know this is an environment in which you cannot control the circumstances they're going to put you through a regiment and you know you have to make this throw this throw that throw I was surprised last year that Josh Allen threw just because there were issues with his short accuracy and it was actually obvious in his in his workout and yet he still went in the top 10 and had an all right rookie year so I mean I think it's somewhat irrelevant ultimately because these guys are still going to throw at their pro day the only time it really matters to me is when they're injured and then you're well okay let's see if he can throw with whatever shoulder injury or whatever he's got that's not the case here and he would probably be held to a probably an unfair level of scrutiny here since he is the star of the combine like there's no even close second this year Uh, whereas Baker had was surrounded by a bunch of different guys and I think he would be the guy that everyone would be watching, and no matter what he did, it probably would not live up to what the expectations were. I remember going back to last year, it was all about Darnold at this point. Yeah. I mean, it really was Darnold, and it was Allen, and it was just, what's Baker going to say at the podium? And then Baker came to the podium, and you were like, hmm, okay, (laughs) that's interesting. But it's crazy, though, like when you brought up Darnold, I don't even remember him not throwing at the combat. No, like it didn't yeah. even. It didn't. It might have felt like a big deal at the time, but I. It, it didn't even. Didn't even register. It, it is just crazy how the first weekend in March, <laughs> we were thinking it was Sam Darnold, one, Josh Allen, two, maybe Lamar Jackson, three. Some people, yeah, and other people had Baker three, or four, in that list. And two months later, the number one pick in the draft is one Baker Mayfield. You know what's wild about this whole process to me, and I don't know if this is just like my own opinion that I just see from afar or whatever, but I feel like we spend so much time in evaluating these guys that we sometimes lose the initial value of watching their game. I mean, simply watching their game week by week and watching how they perform in the situations and the opportunities that they're granted. And we, well, he's got the, he's got the big arm or he's, he's prototypical size or he's too small or whatever it is. And we forget that a lot of these guys are still making plays. And, and, and I think we break them down too much. Oh, yeah. And then the pecking order gets all skewed the first, right now. Yeah, the, the first two weeks of April, it becomes silly season because you have dissected this kid or these kids to the point where one little thing that they did three out of four times is considered a tendency and – they could drop. And then we watch some teams fall victim to it, but yeah. then other teams bring clarity to the situation. There's two examples of this, both at offensive tackle, and it goes both ways. This time last year, people were just killing Orlando Brown. Yeah. Like, he had an awful combine, which was – I, I remember at the time I said, I do judge a person for having that poorly of a combine because it's a test you've known you're going to have for months. So it's a matter of you can judge them on how they prepared themselves for the combine, but he, he probably fell a little bit in the draft because of it. But now he's, he's in a good situation. He's going to be a good, good NFL player. He produced. He was a great college player. He just didn't measure out well. And another one that's close to home for us, I think, is Greg Robinson. He had a great college career at Auburn. But he was a stud at the combine. And I think that's what really vaulted him into that top, top discussion where he was probably overdrafted and put in a situation where he had to go in and produce right away. Right. Didn't live up to the expectations, but it was a result of him running like a 4-8-40 for this huge offensive tackle. And it, you know what? Let's talk to let's talk about Greg Robinson real quick because I feel like his signing, you have Desmond Harrison. I mean, you do have all five of your starters back on the offensive line and technically and your top two sixth man. backups too. Yeah. 
we'll hear from Bucky Brooks a little bit later. I'm interested to get his take on the offensive line, but I wonder how much of a priority the offensive line has become on day one or even day two, and is it more day three for an emphasis? It's interesting because I can go both ways. Like Nick said earlier, this offensive tackle class just like shapes up perfectly for that number 17 it, pick it where, where, where you're like, where if you're truly dra- drafting the best player available, I mean, it might just be a tackle. And if that, if so, if you stick to best player available, it might be a tackle. But then I look at you've got your offensive line set. You just re-signed Greg Robinson, who I think we, with watching Greg Robinson, believe it much more than maybe some of these national analysts who are still skeptical that he's going to be the guy. Then you come, you have a, a Green Bay Packer kind of based organization here, which year after year turns these late round picks into starters you have the offensive line coach james campen who has a, a reputation of doing that do you really then use a first round pick on a tackle when you're hoping to get a starter i mean that's what you want out of your first round so i go back and forth with it i i, I the the robinson signing really hasn't changed my thoughts on it i'm still 50 50 that it could happen i thought the robinson signing was a no-brainer because you have to bring a guy like that back who has that obvious yes. talent and seems to have not had the opportunity beyond his first couple of years in st louis to really prove that and some guys you know their maturation process is slower than others but he's got the attributes you want you know, he's got light feet he's got powerful hands long arms and he's very stout i mean when he gets engaged by edge rushers he doesn't move he doesn't give up ground and, and it was evident in every game that he played for the browns this year so that seem to solve it for now but you know like Andrew said those prospects are there and it makes you think well what down the road because you know John talked about today we're talking about down the road we're talking about building for the future not just this year years down the road what do they want to do with the other tackle position and do they want insurance at the left tackle position because Greg's on a one-year deal so there is still some intrigue to that but yeah I think at some point in this draft maybe in the first three rounds you might see a tackle go to them you're right. It does shape up really well at 17. <laughs> it, it really does. I mean, we, we talk about best player available, best podcast available. Yeah, BPAs. I mean, I, 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 I would have a tough time after watching him for the last three years. If a guy like Jonah Williams is there, I mean, I don't know how you pass him up. That could play all, any spot on the offensive line for you. I know you, you just got that in Austin Corbett, but ultimately you, he was an, any spot on the offensive line, which is now basically down, basically it's down to three spots in the yeah, offensive yeah. line after you brought him in the building. But I think Corbett's still a part of your future at one of those spots on the interior line. And now I think maybe you, do, you could do the same at the tackle position. Draft, even if you don't think they're going to play much that first year, you're building for the future. Guys, appreciate it. Nick, welcome on board. Looking forward to have you on here uh, as we get a little bit further into this whole draft process. And maybe things start to become a little clearer as we work our way towards April in the 2019 NFL Draft. Definitely. Thanks for having me on. Really excited about it. Definitely. We're excited to have you on board. Uh, coming up, you're here from NFL Network analyst Bucky Brooks. Right now, though, my guy, Andrew Gribble, sits down with Joe Thomas to talk about his combine experiences, a little look ahead to the NFL Draft class this year when it comes to offensive linemen, and uh, a couple stories as well. Yeah, Joe's seen a lot. and he's He's been through one draft, but he's uh, experienced many as a player. Uh, some really good stuff from Joe, who's he's just growing in this in this this uh, media world. He, he's latching onto now. We're all campaigning for him to get Monday Night Football too. Might be a candidate now. <laughs> Here's Joe Thomas and Andrew Gribble. Have a listen. All right, Joe. It's been about twelve years since you were at the NFL Combine. Is that is that correct? It's uh, somewhere in that ballpark. So somewhere, let's see, 2007 was my combine in 2019. Yeah, it seems like pretty good math. What do you remember most about that time in your career? 
Honestly, I remember how stressful and how much I hated the combine. It's it's such an important job interview. It's over three days. They grind you into a pulp uh, over those three days, you know, 5 a.m. to 10, 11, 12 midnight. And you got to be on your game the entire time because you're constantly being evaluated. You're constantly being pulled in a bunch of different directions by different teams that want to talk to you. And there's a lot of mind games that go on. Different teams have different ways of evaluating draft picks. But a lot of teams, they want to put you in uncompromising positions, uh, whether that's physically making you uncomfortable or asking you questions that make you really uncomfortable because they want to see how you react under pressure. So it's a very pressure-filled, anxiety-driven three, four days. And when you go home, I remember I slept for like 12 hours that first night because I was just so physically and mentally exhausted what's the toughest part honestly it's the mental part because the physical part was almost a relief you got to go out there and show what you have as an athlete you got to do these tests that you've been preparing for you got to go through all the drills that you've been working on and it was being an athlete again that's what you're used to doing Um, but all the different interviews where they're trying to grill you about playbooks and remembering people's names and all these psychological tests that they put you through they're they're trying to make you crack and it's your job to remain composed and to handle yourself as professionally as possible but you know how high the stakes are and it's very very pressure packed and it's extremely uh anxious situation i know they have trainers for everything right now with guys at the combine did you go through any of that and did is there any way you can prepare for that mental grind yeah i was a little bit different than most guys where i just decided to stay and train in madison where i'd gone to school because i felt like those guys knew me the best um they were gonna do the best job of kind of keeping my life pretty much the same i didn't want to go fly off somewhere else and have to deal with the distractions of moving and training in a place with unfamiliar people and i felt like a lot of guys they go to florida and arizona and they use it like a, a vacation almost and for me yeah I was training for the combine I wanted to do my best at at the combine I wanted to put my best foot forward but for me I didn't want to lose sight of the fact that I was still training for my first NFL season because I had hoped that I could be the starter from day one wherever I was drafted and I needed to train in the offseason like I was going to go play football. I wasn't training just to run the 40 or to do offensive lineman drills or to do the vertical jump. I wanted to still make sure I was training to be a football player so that after I got drafted, I was ready to play football again. What's the one drill at the combine that is most important for an offensive lineman? Like, what is the most reflective of how good you are actually are as a player? You know, I would say just watching an offensive lineman move is really important because you can tell a lot about the type of athlete they are and if they're going to be able to translate to being an NFL offensive lineman. But as far as the measurable metric, I think the broad jump, the vertical jump, those are two tests that tell you what type of an explosive athlete you're dealing with. Um, If a guy is able to move his body quickly through the air with a jump, broad jump or vertical jump, that proves that they can create power. They can create energy from the ground up, which is what being an offensive lineman is all about. Did you meet with the Browns at the Combine? I think I did. They were holding the third pick at the time, and I'm pretty sure I met with them. There was, I don't know, maybe seven or eight teams that had specific interviews and a specific time slot where you go to these hotel conference rooms and you sit in there with 
all the coaches and you sit in there with the management and some of the scouts and they put you on the, the grease board and you have to write up plays and you have to remember things. And I'm pretty sure that I met with the Browns, but then you also have, they call this place called the train station where it's like this big cafeteria area where when you don't have specifically timed interviews with different teams, you basically just hang out in the train station and wait for different teams, scouts to just come over and grab you literally physically by the arm and pull you over. And then you go sit with an assistant coach or a scout from a team. And then they just kind of grill you and they go through all their different questions on their list so that they can write their report back to their superior about you as a player. Do you remember anything about talking with the Browns there? What is the first point in time where you remember connecting with the Browns and, and maybe thinking you could come here? So actually the first point I remember connecting with the Browns was in Mobile, Alabama at the Senior Bowl. I didn't participate in the Senior Bowl. At that point, it had already been considered the unanimous first offensive lineman. So I didn't feel like going to the Senior Bowl was going to help my draft status. It was going to interrupt my training, potential injury, and then all you can really do is if you screw up or you don't have a good week, you could hurt your stock. So at that point, it was more important for me to go to the Senior Bowl, which I went with my agent, Peter Schaefer. But I just had the opportunity to meet the different coaches and the general managers. And I remember very vividly sitting down at one of the great restaurants in Mobile, Alabama with Phil Savage, who was the GM. It was just me and Phil and my agent. And we just talked and we had some uh, some oysters and some some good southern food. And uh, I got a chance to meet him then, and that was the really the first time that I got to connect with the Browns. So, so do you think for other players, is this the point in the process where they're starting to figure out where they might go, or is it still so much up in the air at that point? Yeah, really nobody has any idea. Even the people that say they know, it's usually crap, because there's so many smoke signals that go out right now, and for the most part right now, they're just gathering information, even the decision makers, which is usually one or two people in an organization. Usually it's the GM or the president or the head coach. Even they don't know who is who they're going to draft. So if anybody tells you, oh, I think you're going to go here or there, they got no idea because all it takes is one trade, especially at the top of the draft, and then all the order completely changes and you have no idea where somebody's going to end up. Just kind of looking ahead, you're, you're going to be at the Combine this year. Maybe your first, Is it your first time back since you participated it in it? It will be. I'm, yeah, I'm excited to go back, uh, especially because there won't be the pressure on me to perform like there used to be. But I'm excited to see how much it's changed. I know they let fans there now when they didn't when I was there. And just get a chance to meet some of the prospects and watch them work and see what the next crop of NFL talent looks like. Well, I'll ask you this, because you watch a little bit of college football, and you know the game's changed so much since you've been there. How tougher is it now for a left tackle to come into the league and play these kind of offenses based on what they're doing in, in college now? It's very difficult because pro-style techniques are not being taught at the college level anymore for the most part, by and large. There's a few schools that still run pro-style offenses. I think about Michigan. I think about Wisconsin. Uh, but for the most part, most of these offensive linemen are going to be doing things completely different in the NFL than what they do right now in college. And so you're basically learning how to walk all over again when you go to the NFL. And I think that's why there's such a big learning curve for college players, especially linemen right now, going to the NFL. And there's so much more for them to learn. And that's why it's been such a struggle to pick and select offensive linemen because you have to predict so much more about if this guy can play in the NFL you can't just watch him do the things that he's going to do on Saturday uh, uh, as he's going to do on Sunday on Saturday 
because they don't do any of the same things anymore. You're running these wide-open spread offenses where all the offensive linemen do is run left, run right, or set back and pass protect for one and a half seconds for a quick bubble screen or a quick throw uh, down the sideline. Um, so it, it becomes really difficult, and it's a challenging job for today's scouts. It seems like a lot of these guys are being – they did something in college, then the NFL projects them differently. When you look back, are you are you fortunate that you you got to do just the straight left tackle to left tackle transition there? Yeah, I'm really fortunate playing at Wisconsin, being in a pro style offense, using a lot of the same techniques. Now, my my pass blocking technique changed a lot throughout my career. A lot of that was my own doing, just being very analytical of what I'm doing and how I can make that better and the biomechanics and how I understood that. But the run blocking techniques, what I did in college is the same as what I did in the NFL. And most guys don't have that. And it's hard to learn run blocking techniques, especially in today's NFL, because you don't get as many practices. You don't get as much contact to learn those run blocking techniques as you did when I was a rookie and, um, and when I was in college. It seems like these NFL offenses, though, are adjusting to almost to cater to these these college players coming in, and you're seeing maybe maybe trying to make the transition a little bit smoother, though, with how these are offenses are running. Yeah, I think it's the natural progression of things because more quarterbacks now are the quarterbacks that can run and throw. So you have the dual-threat type quarterbacks, and so you're trying to develop offenses that protect your quarterback but also give them the opportunity to showcase their talents. And so I think it also makes sense to build an offense around teams that you can get the talent from college that do those things rather than keep trying to force people you know the the square peg into the round hole uh because over time it's just a losing scenario because you're going to miss out on so many more prospects when you're projecting them to do something different and then you have to teach them an entirely new skill set in the nfl i know you're not mel kuyper jr or anything like that at at this stage uh, but you're looking at the browns they're picking 17th. I mean, that's been a long time since you've been in that yeah. position where they're that deep in the draft. But this maybe brings back memories to your 2008 season, coming off a season like that and then going in. How, how can a rookie class help a team that feels like it's very close to, mm-hmm. to breaking through? Well, ideally with your rookie class, you're going to get a couple guys that are going to come in right away and can be starters and be contributors. And as a young player, you hope that they can infuse some energy and some uh, new enthusiasm to an offense or a defense. And, uh, you know, the Browns have a lot of draft picks. I think they got, what, 11 picks this year right now, 10 picks. Um, So even though they're not picking as high as they have been, they've got a lot of assets and a lot of resources that they can either combine to move up or if they want to move down. So Dorsey's going to have the flexibility to really find those players and they also have a much more talented roster than we've had in a long time so they have the luxury of being able to take the best player available at a lot of positions which for the most part prevents you from having to reach for positions of extreme need you were here so many times where you had to rely on some of these rookies to come in right away I mean how how different will it be for this locker room to maybe not have any of these guys be counted on right away Bill Parcells always said that It takes a rookie a lot of times three years before you know if they can play in the NFL or not. And a lot of times those rookies have to learn how to play in the NFL by sitting and watching. And that's the best way for those players. And every player is different in the NFL. And so uh, when you have to force a young player into action before he's ready, it's that sink or swim moment where that might ruin their career forever because they'll never be able to recover if they do sink. Whereas if you give 
if you have a lot more talent on your team and you give a guy that's not ready just an opportunity to sit and watch and work on his craft behind the scenes so that when it is his time in a couple years, he does have an opportunity to put his best foot forward. Are you in the trust Dorsey with whatever camp with this kind of draft or are there some positions where you, you could see them going early in the draft? Yeah, I, I would always trust Dorsey. He's <laughs> proven that uh, he's a man that knows what he's doing as a GM. Um, but I, I think clearly they're going to probably look best available, which is what everyone always says. But the Browns, like I mentioned, they, they, they truly have the ability to kind of sit back and see what falls to them because they've got a lot of the most important positions already checked off the list. Quarterback, pass rusher, uh, cornerback. Those are sort of your marquee positions that you always have to address And because the Browns aren't in dire need of any of those positions. They're, they're really fortunate because – those teams that do need them, they have the ability to swing a deal, and now they have leverage with all those teams that need the quarterback. They need that pass rusher. They need that cornerback. Um, but I still think I would expect Dorsey to kind of hone in on maybe defensive tackle. I could definitely see him taking a defensive tackle, maybe another pass rusher, because you never can have too many good pass rushers. Same thing with secondary cornerbacks. You never can have a, enough shutdown corners, especially when you deal with injuries and stuff like that. You know, uh, inside linebacker, that's a, a position that you expect they'll probably pick a player you don't know where in the draft but um down the line even if they're not somebody that's going to play right away you want to start developing those guys for future years offensive line you always want to take an offensive line every year it's a position that takes a long time to develop and you always want to have somebody in the pipeline because you're always going to have injuries you're going to have trades you're going to have guys that leave in free agency you're going to have guys that just retire that just get too old to do it anymore and so you want to have that healthy cupboard that's stocked that's able to replace those guys as they move on and certainly that's what Dorsey's going to be thinking as a player when you were on the team did you watch the draft at all I actually didn't um I remember hearing who we drafted occasionally because the quick story, I was at Eric Steinbach, who was our left guard's wedding. Uh, this is after my second year in the NFL. I was with Hank Fraley. A bunch of the linemen were there. We were in Chicago. And all of a sudden, Hank started hammering beers at the, at the wedding. And we're like, what the hell's going on? And he had just gotten a message that the Browns had just drafted Alex Mack in the first round. So Hank knew that his days as a Brown were limited and he probably wasn't going to be the starter anymore. Because when you're a vet, you know what it's like when a team drafts a first-round pick at your position. That means they're trying to replace you. And so I think as an older guy who maybe feels like you're on the bubble, those are the guys that are going to be watching the draft really closely to make sure that they don't pick guys at their position. So now that you're retired, though, you understand the draw of this event and why it's gotten bigger and bigger? Absolutely. I mean, as as a fan, it's it's so exciting because this is – the future of your franchise and and the NFL has done a good job of really pumping it up and marketing it and making it a drama filled evening thanks to specifically the Aaron Rodgers the Brady Quinn those guys that drop in the draft and they really do a good job of building the drama around it and um, I'm excited I actually now that I'm just a fan I'm just fanboy in the Browns I'm really excited to watch and see who they draft, and I'm excited to find out about these these young guys because they are the future. But when you're a player, you realize that the flame out rate of draft picks is you know 50 some percent. So rather than getting all wrapped up in your time of learning about these guys, that some of them might you know not even make the field uh, ever on a Sunday, you got better things to do with your time. But as a fan, there's nothing better than watching the draft. 
All right, that's our own Joe Thomas with Andrew Gribble. Just a fantastic behind-the-scenes look. Really kind of giving you a, a sense of, you know, what he's been through, what he's seen. It's almost book material. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. He's seen it all. And it's interesting to go back to that 2007 draft. I was in college still. Gibbs, you were in Cleveland. What Do you remember? I, I know that draft, everything was – Brady Quinn stole the show with the moves that the Browns made to go get Brady Quinn, but was there even a reaction to Joe Thomas, or was it just such a slam-dunk automatic pick that the people were on board? You know what? It wasn't a slam-dunk pick because Brady was out there, and everybody was kind of like, well, I think we all thought, you know, we were looking at the Baltimore Ravens model at the time, and Ogden, you know, being the guy that really was the cornerstone and really got things going because then Ray Lewis came. And then, you know, you showed that you didn't need a stellar quarterback. You just need a, a good quarterback that, that didn't turn the football over. And you had a guy that was going to protect the blind side. It was all about the blind side. So when they took him, I, Browns fans were happy. Browns fans were fine. But, you know, if I go back and remember the NFL draft coverage itself of it, you know, I mean, here's a guy that was on the phone while he was on a boat. Yeah, <laughs> and out fishing. So you, you didn't know a lot about Joe other than the fact that you knew he was a really good left tackle from Wisconsin, and Wisconsin breeds offensive linemen. So, and the most random thing, that if you go back and look at it, the moment that it was announced that the Browns were taking Joe Thomas, a drunk guy in the stands yelled out, just as he paused to say Joe Thomas, someone in the crowd yelled, Jared Zabransky. <laughs> I'll never forget that moment. And uh, people who remember Jared Zabransky was the quarterback at Boise State during that magical Boise yeah. State run. Not an NFL player, a great college player. <laughs> the Browns are in the market for a quarterback. But I just remember, you, I remember we, we unearthed the footage a, a couple mu- a couple years ago on ClevelandBrowns.com, and I remembered it the day I was watching it at my house in college. And my, I remember we were laughing hysterically at the time that someone yelled Jared Zabransky out of the crowd. <laughs> I, I don't remember that. <laughs> I remember I, I was working for ESPN Radio in Cleveland, and we did we did it. The draft was on a Saturday. Yeah, I mean, it, and it was Saturday and Sunday, and the draft started at noon and went till like eleven o'clock at night. The first three rounds, and then it was four through eight. I think I think it was eight rounds at the time. Yeah, and that was all day Sunday. So I mean, it was a gauntlet, and, and they drafted Joe Thomas. And then the, you're watching Brady Quinn in the green room, and, and you're seeing everything that goes down. And I remember I was outside. I was on a, uh, I was on a cell phone, like, okay, what are we going to do here? What are the next steps? Okay, we're going to check in with Berea. And then I don't even remember who I was on the phone with out, that was out in Berea, and they just said, holy blank, the helmet just changed. I almost dropped the phone. I was on a dead sprint, and, like, Everybody in the bar. This place was packed. It was wall-to-wall people. The helmet changed. The place lost its mind. And they announced it, and grown men cried. And everybody was like, you got your quarterback and your left tackle. Well, and I I remember, I think, too, it was almost like people saw it as a positive because it had just been a few years before that it happened to Aaron Rodgers. And then at that point, I think Aaron Rodgers was just starting to turn into a really good quarterback. And it's like, oh, if this guy falls, he could just be the next Aaron Rodgers. It yeah. didn't turn out that way. No. And then and then the next year, the best podcast available definitely could not have existed because the Browns <laughs> didn't start picking until the fourth round. I don't know how we would get through an offseason. Could you imagine what would you talk about 
I mean, we have to go back in time. What did people talk about after that? So I guess it was it was a they, good they, season. They questioned people the front excited. office. People were excited because even even after the good season, there were questions, and it was well, if you want to keep take the next step and make the playoffs, you need players, and we're not picking until the fourth round. Yeah, and then he took Bo Bell. <laughs> Yeah, there was, and then there were a lot of questions. That, that was a few too many. <laughs> People have been talking. Browns fans talking. The Browns need to go for it right now because Baker Mayfield's in his rookie deal. That that's the cost of of going for it is what happened with that uh, shaping up for the 2008 Browns draft. Yeah, there's no need to sacrifice. We appreciate Joe Thomas's time. Great job by you on the interview. Very rarely do we do two interviews, but being that we are in Indianapolis and at the NFL Combine, it is a who's who uh, walking around here and on Radio Row. We were lucky enough to get uh, a few minutes with Bucky Brooks, NFL Network analyst, and really moving up now in terms of the draft coverage. And he and Daniel Jeremiah do a great job with their coverage of the draft leading up with the Moving the Sticks podcast. Yeah, he's good. And I think that you'll see in our interview with him, He's in the camp that he's starting to think tackle, which might not be a popular one with Browns fans, but he's definitely on in that category where he thinks offensive tackle is a possibility at 17. All right, here's NFL Network's Bucky Brooks with Andrew Gribble and myself. Have a listen. Bucky, I'll ask you just uh, in general, the, the quarterback class here, it doesn't really apply to the Browns much at all, but you know, I know Browns fans are rooting for as many quarterbacks to go before number 17. What, what do you? How do you gauge that group right now and, and the likelihood of – some of those guys being off the board by the time the Browns pick? Uh, I think two for sure will be gone. I think Dwayne Haskins and Kyler Murray in whatever order, I think they'll be off the board. I think the wild card of the group is obviously Drew Locke. And where does Drew Locke go? Um, Overall, with the quarterbacks, I think the difference is last year you had a bunch of teams that were pressed and really needing a quarterback. This year the need isn't as ready and apparent. You have the New York Giants who could take one. But they're still kind of infatuated with Eli Manning, so you don't know if they're really going to pull the trigger early. And then when you go behind them, the Jacksonville Jaguars, it appears like they're locked into Nick Foles. And so if those two teams find their quarterback or decide their quarterback is elsewhere, it then kind of muddies up the waters with which defensive players go, whether the quarterbacks go, who jumps into the mix. And so it, it'll be interesting to see how the first 10 or so picks play out. Now, earlier today, John Dorsey said the strength of this draft is defensive line. Is yeah. that is that – is that just kind of a unanimous feeling right now? And then what? Uh, yeah, I with, think with the Browns at 17, how, how much can they benefit from that? I mean, I think it's, it's, it's kind of unanimous. The consensus is that the defensive line is really rock solid. Uh, they're interior defensive tackles. They're guys that can rush the passer. They're all kinds of specialists. And so I think it benefits the Browns when you're sitting at 17. Uh, knowing Dorsey and Elliott Wolf and Alonzo Highsmith, like I know him, they're going to take the best available player. And whether that player is on the defensive line or the offensive line, they're going to make sure that they try and get a blue-chip play in the first round because it's very important in the first round that you get guys that can start, they can start for a long time because ultimately they're the nucleus of your team. I would think with the Browns and looking at them, they need to make sure that they solidify that offensive line, make sure that Baker Mayfield is protected, he is the franchise, they want to be able to run the ball and kind of take pressure off him. I think they continue to pour assets and to the offense, and then I think they work back around and figure out a way to fix the defense. It is nice that we're not talking quarterback. Maybe for the first time since 2007 when we drafted Brady Quinn. Were you surprised at Baker Mayfield's success? Uh, I mean, I can't say that I I was surprised. I I would say that my commentary about Baker Mayfield prior to the draft was Baker Mayfield didn't necessarily hit the prototypes 
Uh, Baker Mayfield was six foot tall. Baker Mayfield wasn't like overly athletic when it came to the numbers. Uh, he had outstanding arm talent and accuracy. But typically, if you're a guy that is right around six foot, you have to be exceptional in other areas to go at the top. Michael Vick was an exception to the rule. And so, but now that he has kind of done it and gone into the league, I thought the Browns did a great job after Freddie Kitchens took over of putting him in the right situation. Uh, we saw two and three tight ends on the field. We saw the running game with Nick Chubb. We saw them stretch the field off play action. I thought it was a combination of Baker Mayfield being who he is, but also the play caller doing a great job of setting him up for success by asking him to do things that really work within his wheelhouse. You mentioned offensive line with the Browns kind of fortifying that. They they brought back Greg Robinson on the one-year deal, but what when, when you look at these tackle prospects and the, the realism of them being there at 17, which guys make the most sense for the Browns? You know, it's kind of funny because you're trying to figure out how the Browns are going to play. Are they going to be a team that still wants to grind it out and throw off play action in Baker Mayfield? Are they going to eventually kind of hand him the ball and say, hey, I want you to throw it 35 or 40 times? Depending on that, it depends on which kind of tackle you take. If you want a pass-first tackle, a guy that's a pass protector, Andre Dillard is going to be the guy. He's natural, he's athletic, does a great job playing left tackle. He kind of gets it when it comes to that. If you want to be more of a bully and kind of have the ground and pound, uh, kind of like the old dog pound, then I think you're talking about guys uh, like a Jonas Williams that can do it. Jawan Taylor from Florida can also do that. And then the wild card of it is kind of Greg Little from Ole Miss. He's more athletic than polished, but he certainly is worthy of being a first-round pick. On the defensive tackle side of things, you know, Jeffrey Simmons with a torn ACL has kind of thrown a little wrinkle into it. Does it affect the depth of this defensive line draft? Uh, you know, so much is being made of that. Being I, I mean, I don't know if it necessarily affects the depth of the defensive tackle class. I think it determines where do you want to take him. Uh, if he's healthy, he's top one, top two at the defensive tackle position. Now that he's not healthy and it may be a bit of a redshirt here this year, where is the right value? Is that value at the bottom of the first round? Is that value at the top of the second round? Uh, whoever takes him is getting a really good football player. Then it's on him to just rehab and get back to being the player. Uh, without the injury, I mean, we're talking about a top 10 talent. We're talking about a guy that may go into top five after it's all said and done. Really good player. He won't affect it. I think they just kind of reshuffle the deck. But there are a ton of players on the inside that can play. Browns fans love always talking about wide receivers. It doesn't seem likely that they would go that direction in the first round. Are there, are there any guys you like as day two, day three guys that really stand out to you at that position? Uh, there are a handful of guys. I think if you're trying to fill out and complement the wide receiver core, uh, Jarvis Landry is obviously the number one. He's more of a kind of a ball control, chain mover. Uh, then you have Perriman, who kind of came on late, was the vertical stretch guy. Antonio Callaway made some plays. I think the big thing they need, they could still use a speed guy, a burner, someone that can take the top off the defense, stretch it out, keep those guys from creeping in the box. Debo Samuel from South Carolina is someone that could be of interest maybe in the second or third round. Uh, Terry McLaurin from Ohio State is another guy that can be of interest maybe in the mid-rounds, in the fourth round. And then I would keep an eye on this super athlete from Georgia called Terry Godwin, five-star athlete. A guy that came on, dominated the East-West Shrine Bowl. They need someone that can be a difference maker, someone who can give them juice on the offense. Talking with NFL Network's Bucky Brooks, he'll be on the coverage for NFL Network all weekend long here from Indianapolis in the 2019 NFL Combine. Are there other guys that you're looking at that, that we haven't talked about? Positions, certain things that you're looking for this weekend? Uh, I mean, I think the main thing is you're trying to figure out who the guys that put up big numbers and who are the guys that create a buzz. A lot of the conversations when you come out of the combine center around guys that are the stars. Tight end position is outstanding, but you guys don't need tight ends. I think when you look at the pass rushers, who are going to be the pass rushers that emerge? 
O'Shane Zemenis from ODU is a guy that can be a pass rusher. Just kind of depends. I'm curious to see what Steve Wilkes wants to do with the defense. Are they going to play the 4-3? Are they going to morph into a 3-4? What does he want to do with that defense? That'll kind of determine how they go about the process. But there are a lot of exciting prospects in this class. I'll go a a random direction here. The the Browns are probably looking for a backup quarterback. The Packers organization with Wolf and Heisman, they always took a shot at a quarterback in these later rounds. Would would it surprise you if the Browns added a a guy late late rounds? Normally every other year is when they would normally do that. They normally would. Um, so if they took Baker this year, next year would be the year they would look for a backup quarterback, uh, try and take a guy mid to late round that has something about him that intriguing, whether it's size, whether it's arm talent, whether it's those things. Um, and this is like maybe a, a Tyree Jackson from Buffalo who is a tall developmental type prospect. The thing that you have to be careful of when you take a young quarterback like Baker Mayfield you don't necessarily want to upset the apple cart. You want to make sure that he feels like and he understands that he is the dude. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might go shop, shopping in the bargain bin with a veteran. Do that for this year, and then next year try and find a young developmental prospect after he's fully entrenched as a QB1. Bucky, I know we, you got to get going here. You just got done with a little TV, and uh, the car wash continues, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> appreciate, yes. appreciate a few minutes of your time, and wish you all the best of luck this weekend and going forward here on NFL Networking with that high school program. What's the biggest need for the high school program? Uh, biggest need, we just got to get together. Um, I, I'm excited about it. I think we had good kids. It's much like uh, what the guys did when John Dorsey came in with the Browns trying to build it from the ground up. Same thing. It's going to be a lot of fun. Appreciate the time as always, man. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, guys. Thanks again to NFL Network analyst Bucky Brooks for taking the time out of his busy day. The guy was on TV for four hours, then just came and spent about eight minutes with us. A lot of good stuff there uh, coming out from Bucky Brooks. Yeah, you know, he he knows his stuff, and I think I would definitely pay attention to what he talked about with the day two, day three wide receivers. That's the direction I think it's trending in, and I think that when John Dorsey mentioned earlier today, there's a lot of big uh, strong guys that, that maybe fit the mold of what the Browns are missing. A couple of those guys, Nikhil Harry, uh, Hakeem Butler, those are going to be day two guys. You can get these big freak athletes on day two because there's just not going to be many first-round wide receivers this year. The whole offensive lineman at 17, if, if it's the best player available, then it's the best player available. But um, I wonder where John Dorsey and company's – board it stands well, when it comes it, to the that, offensive that, I mean, that could lead to the situation where if it is the best player available by far, then you maybe start taking some offers for that 17th pick and you move back and then acquire another one of those second-round picks potentially uh, by sliding back in the first round. John Dorsey's done it before. He did it in the 2016 NFL draft, traded completely out of the first round, ended up getting Chris Jones. Not a bad draft. I think they got Tyree Kill later in that draft too. Yeah. So they, they were okay. All right, a couple things before we get out of here from Indianapolis. Uh, Jason Witten, going back to the NFL, unretiring. One year, $3.5 million. I'm wondering, I saw a tweet from Adam Schefter that basically said a lot of people in NFL circles think think he's head coach material. If it doesn't work out with Jason Garrett this year and they don't win, is he the head coach in waiting? I mean, that's what's that's what's interesting. I I was like maybe the only one that was questioning this as a football move. Like I I don't remember him being very good near the end of his career. No, he was very like he was he was looking old, and and now he's been out of football for a year. I I'm I'm just curious what he's going to look like as a player, especially at a position that is so demanding, like tight end. I mean, that is a demanding physically physically demanding position as there is on the entire field. It's almost impossible for a tight end to go through a season without some kind of injury. I'm just curious what they see in him as a player right now. And you're almost committed to him. Like, yeah. Jerry's not going to cut him. 
No. And there's only 53 spots on the team. I mean, they, they might have had the worst tight end situation in the league last year. I, I don't know if I could name who even – I think it was like Jeff Swaim was their tight end for a little bit. So they need sure. they need players at the position. I, I just – You said it confidently. I I'm, I'm, I'm think Monday Night Football will be better off. I think Jason <laughs> Witten will be better off pursuing a coaching opportunity. I think it was a tough year for him. It's not any, Tony Romo made it look easy. Doing that kind of stuff is really, really hard. And I think we saw it with a guy going straight out of – out of the NFL in there, and it's it's a struggle. That's why I think whatever the, the guy's name escapes me, who the Saints radio play-by-play guy, he went straight from being the team's offensive tackle to not only being an analyst, but he is the play-by-play. I think is, is it Zach? Oh, I know who you're Zach talking Strife? about. Zach Strife. Zach Strife. Okay. You know what? I remember because he came into the radio booth and had some really kind words for Jim Donovan. He and Jim Donovan talked for about half an hour. He wanted to pick Jim's brain. He said, hey, I listen to your games. feel like I'm doing this right, but how do I get better doing X, Y, and Z? And I've heard he's really good. Yeah. And I think like, he's, he's, he's transitioned right. to that role. He went, he went from player to color analyst to all of a sudden the play-by-play guy. Yeah, that's tough. That's, that, that's a big ask. That is a huge, huge ask. Because I, mean, I, I like Tessator on Monday Night Football. I'm not the biggest fan of Tessator, but he's all right. He's not the problem with the broadcast. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see who they pull from. I think uh, my if I'm setting betting odds, I'm going with either Lewis Riddick or I'm going with uh, Kurt Warner. Any chance you get a Burleson or a Dan Orlovsky? Burleson was really good yeah. when he did play-by-play on those Saturday games. I think games. ESPN makes a run at him. Bur- Burleson was really good. And that would be a big jump for him, too, because he hasn't done that much very at all, but he's done a ton of TV. Yeah, I don't know. That, that's something to watch here as we get into the season. Final thoughts here from Indianapolis. Uh, the biggest question, what will we be talking about when it comes to the draft podcast, the best podcast available next week? After we've had a weekend of the Combine, you know, the, the first couple episodes we were kind of, okay, once we get to the Combine, things will clear up a little bit. I don't know if it is going to clear up, and I, I do think it's it's just a result of maybe us just implicitly trusting Dorsey with what he's going to do with this pick, but it's just there's going to be a lot of defensive guys, and I think there's going to be a lot of names that leak out there that the Browns have have interviewed, whether it be uh, players saying it themselves, whether it be agents leaking who met with who. I think Nate Ulrich of the Akron Journal already reported that Andre Dillard of the Washington State tackle, he's got a meeting set up with the Browns. I mean, they get 60 of these interviews. They're going to talk to a lot of guys, and they may ultimately not talk to the guy they pick at 17. So I think we'll kind of have a direction. The meeting with Dorsey today set me in the direction where I think it's going to be defense, and that I'll, I'll stick with that, and we'll, we'll maybe hear – which defensive guys that the Browns end up talking to, and then we'll kind of start cross-referencing all these mock drafts. I do think the mock drafts after the combine get a little bit more accurate. Correct. I wonder to Kyler Murray, Yeah. you know, if he blows the barn doors off of his interviews and he has a heck – if he decides to throw and work out and he works out and has a monster workout, what does that set in motion from a trade aspect? You know, I mean – is someone like what if it's a Patriots team that says we're willing to move up and move up big, you know, or is it a Miami Dolphins team looking yeah. for a quarterback? Is it, you know, who we've said, well, maybe they're tanking for two years. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a possibility. But is it something that, that a that team just says, you know what, we're, we're going to mortgage the whole thing and go up and get our quarterback. And th- that could change the whole dynamic of this draft. Yeah, I hope it happens. I think it'll ben- it'll benefit the Browns in some yes. way. It'll push quarterbacks down. And, and I hope all the quarterbacks have monster weekends. 
and I'm root, I'm rooting for Josh Jacobs to go. He's yeah. a running back. I, I mean, root for DK Metcalf if you don't want him to come with the Browns. Root for him to go. You know, yeah. root for all these offensive if, skill guys if, to if, go. If, the tight ends from yes. Iowa, Iowa have those guys off if the board. Seven or eight between quarterback, running back, and wide receiver and tight end. If you get seven or eight of those guys off the board, you now have a top ten. Defensive player, player in, yeah. a, in a good defensive draft. I mean, that's that's the key is to load up on those kind of players in this draft and, and then just let them compete at spots that are – you're not handing these guys starting jobs like you have been in the last two drafts. These guys are going to have to work for what they're going to get. Gribs, we had our IREAs. It's time to call it a weekend, and it is time uh, to get ready and get a little more in-depth as we uh, – move closer to free agency and, of course, the 2019 NFL Draft. The free agency stuff's really going to pick up, and that'll, in turn, affect what happens in the draft here. Yeah, no question about it. Again, get this podcast. If you missed any of the first couple episodes, you can get it wherever you get your podcast. And in addition, clevelandbrowns.com for all of our podcasts uh, between the Joe Thomas Film Room, between Cleveland Browns Daily, and, of course, Uh, the best podcast available. For Jason Gibbs, for Andrew Gribble, want to thank Nick Shook, want to thank Bucky Brooks, want to thank Joe Thomas. Thanks for listening. This is the best podcast available.